All right. Welcome back. Today we are um, continuing where we left off in our argument. For next class, we will be moving into ethics. So we will be using the Human Nature book, right? And your guide should uh, give you the particular chapters we'll be reading. All right. All right. So last class we started with the question of truth. Is there any truth at all? And if there is, is there any religious truth? Since this is RCIA, it better be the case that there's Catholic truth. Otherwise, what are we doing, right? So first, is there any truth at all? We found out that there has to be, right? If there is truth, then there's truth. If there is no truth, then there's the truth that there is no truth, in which case there's at least one truth, which means there is truth. Hence, no matter what, truth is necessary. So we can't be rid of it. Then we ask the question, okay, well, is there any religious truth, right? Maybe there's... Real truth about things like suns and mathematics, but religious truth is all varying. You know, you have yours and I have mine. But then we found out when we did our little experiment, we try to bring God's existence in and out, remember, by using the power of our wills, saying, well, if you believe really hard that God doesn't exist and I believe really hard that he does, does our beliefs make it so, right? Is it really the case that the reality of God depends on how hard we believe? And we realized that truth isn't ours at all, okay? What we have are beliefs. Our beliefs are either true or they're false. God either exists or he doesn't. Angels either exist or they don't. The Bible either contains authority from God or it doesn't. Those are the only options, right? True or false. We may not be able to figure out the answers to those questions, but that's not a problem of truth. That's a problem of knowledge. Do we know anything about this? But So the first step is to realize that definitely there is truth. And then the question is, well, what are the potential religious truths? And so we started off with the fundamental question of theism. And we found out by sort of schematizing our definitions that theism is the belief that God exists, and atheism, of course, denies that. And then of theisms, there's two general kinds. There's monotheism, which says there's one supreme God, and polytheism that says there's a multiplicity of lesser gods. We also saw that those are actually compatible, okay? because in fact, the Christian tradition recognizes that there's one supreme being, an infinite spirit, but then there's also lots and lots and lots of finite ones, which we now call angels and demons. And of course, in the ancient world, they called them the gods and the goddesses. Right? And then of the theisms, we realized that some advance a non-interactive deity, a god who created the world and then kind of walked away, whereas the more popular theisms with which we're familiar uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are all interactive theisms. They have some way in which God enters into the world to communicate messages or to do things, or in the case of Christianity, actually shows up. All right? So that's the question. Is theism true? And is interactive theism true? Those are the two big questions for us. So to ask the question of theism, where's my marker? No, that's not right. If I use that on this, we're in trouble. Use the right one. Okay. Is theism true? In other words, does God exist? And then question number two. Does God, assuming he does exist interact with the world. 
And of course, we know what we're expecting the answers to be to these, right? Otherwise, why would we be here? The answer of both of these is supposed to be yes, of course. But we just, we're not interested in just saying that. We want to know why, right? Well, why would one think that? Because, of course, there's lots of atheists, and there's lots of, you know, there's, well, there actually aren't very many more, but there used to be pagans. Um, and then there's lots of non-interactive theists, right? So how do we know these things? And so that led us to the, look at the question of knowledge. And so last week, we began to look at that. And we realized that there are some truths known via natural reason. Okay? And those truths are things for which anyone has access to the evidence. Okay? And so that's just using our normal natural reasoning minds and thinking about the question of God's existence. And can we think of any reason to think that he might exist? All right? And then the other kinds of truths, it's the basic, but we'll say not. Okay? Same thing, but... All right? And then we'll have to ask the big question. How is that even possible? How does that make sense? All right? Because obviously, if God interacts with the world, he's going to interact in a specific time. All right? Which means immediately, not everybody has access to that event. They weren't there. So what does that look like? What does that mean? How do we verify or justify something like that? So today, we want to be looking at both of these things. Is theism true? How can we establish that by the use of our natural reasoning processes? And then secondly, does God interact with the world? Are there any truths about God that are not known via natural reasoning, but nevertheless, we would have reasons for thinking they're true after we just said we can't directly verify them? How's that even possible? And I'll give you examples of each as we go, and then we'll talk about those processes. All right? So a little bit more complicated tonight. In fact, I expect this will be the most complex lecture. So get ready. All right? Any questions so far? All right, so in your own minds, presumably the vast majority of you are theists. Otherwise, most likely you wouldn't be here. So if someone said to you, well, why do you think God exists? What would be your reason? Because there's some creation of everything. Something had to start everything that it is today. All right, so I'm going to erase... I'm going to leave this one up there. That's good? Okay. Yeah. The first question we might think is, where did everything come from? Yeah? Okay. What else? What might be some other reasons? I read once in a book that there's this... Uh this natural, instinctive kind of knowing that something is either good or bad, and how to base that off of, like, you just naturally know that something feels good rather than... The love goes written in their hearts. Okay, and we want to be careful making it about feeling versus intuition versus knowledge, because sometimes our feeling, feelings are pitted against this thing, right? I feel like I want to do this, and yet my, this sense says, no, don't do it. And that conflict is curious, 
right? If we're just animals, why wouldn't we just be driven by our instincts and our feelings? But we have this extra thing, which is odd, right? So yeah, morals. How in the world do we explain the origin of morals? So some people might say, well, God is the supreme good, therefore that's the origin of goodness. Yeah. What else? God has placed eternity in their hearts. Meaning what? There's a general awareness of eternity, that, that we are eternal beings. I'm going to use a different word. Immortality. I'm going to call it the immortality drive. Okay, immortality because eternality implies existence both directions and we had a, an origin. But the point is, it is really interesting how concerned and obsessed we are with death. You know, you just don't find penguins trying to figure out if there's life after death. Right? When was the last time an elephant had a near-death experience and said, oh, it was a wonder? You know? <laughs> nope. But human beings, boy, this is big to us. Right? We commemorate death. We go through ceremony and ritual. We prepare for it to the point of mummification. Right? Remember our Egyptian ancestors? So all these human beings have been really focused on this. And you would think if as sometimes has been suggested, well, death is a natural process. It's part of the circle of life. Well, we don't eat each other's bodies, do we? At least not initially. Eventually you get to Soylent Green and initially things like that. But those things make us disgusted, right? And we say, no, 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 don't eat each other. This is not good, even when you're dead. Even dead, there's something about human nature, the human body that seems to be sacred. And so we treat it differently. It's not just a circle of life, right? So what, why? What's going on there? And why do we have this sense that we ought to keep living if we're nothing but natural creatures that have evolved to be of this, of this earth and world? Why in the world would we have this bizarre thing? So it seems to be an inexplicable uh, drive. certainly doesn't serve a natural evolution. So I'm not good at arguing the, the opposite because I've believed all my life in this. Okay. Well, I live with an atheist child. Huh. Um, she's actually mine. I just don't live at a random Okay. <laughs> Look at the way she takes ownership there. Yes. Um, and the argument is always, not always, the argument is often um, these things that we perceive to be brought from something else are simply um, again, I'm having trouble. Remember that conversation we had? The the are simply the result of human evolution and the drive to live is not a drive to live it's it's how human beings learned to survive sure that's possible and that's one of the we haven't evaluated any of these yet all we're doing right now is putting up various arguments that we've heard some may be better than others uh, over time, Darwinian evolution has given us ways to explain alternative accounts of some of these. In other cases, it doesn't explain it at all. And so what you find the materialists doing usually is trying to write that piece of evidence out. But it's the, moral, the, the origin question, the morals question, and many others are still there. So if they can't explain this, they have an explanatory gap problem. Okay? But some of them, might, we might come up with alternative explanations on a natural basis that do a good job of giving us an alternative explanation. And they might, it might even be true. Okay? But on the other hand, it's also possible that God uses natural evolutionary processes to help form human nature. There's nothing that stops him from doing that. 
But none of that deals with pre-biological things. Okay, because remember, Darwin only applies to biology. So like the morals question, well, some people try to reduce morality to biology. That's a long argument. But the origins question surely is prior to biology, right? But we have to look at those questions seriously. We can't just assume that there's only a theistic explanation. But if there is a rival, then the question is, which is better? Yes? Um, love. Yes, very good. So we're told that God is love, and yeah. love exists. Yes, love exists. That's right. <laughs> there you go. And here again, we might have someone try to reduce it to certain animal drives. They'll say, well, look at the way the she-bear cares for her cubs. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of these sorts of things that might be offered. But then we see certain instances of love uh, that's particularly dramatic. Um, and we might think, well, this doesn't even seem to appear in the animal kingdom, or maybe it doesn't seem to serve our species at all. Like loving people who are um, going to infect the gene pool down the road with disabled genes, right? And you would think that Darwinianism would try to get rid of those people. And what the Christians have done historically is helped really corrupt the gene pool because we make hospitals and we try to love these people until the bitter end. So... We are not Darwinian in that sense, right? But that's because we think there's something more to life than mere survival. We think we survive for the sake of something, and then you say, well, there you go. That's one of the things we slip for. So that's an interesting type of example. Okay, what else? Other reasons, or we might think God uh, exists. Okay, that's a historical event that wouldn't necessarily be available to every single person, and you just got into... Case number two. That's interactive. Yes? So I'm going to hold off on dealing with that till later. But yes, yes, correct. If miracles occur, uh, that's a big problem for somebody who thinks that God doesn't exist. How do you explain that? So would nature? What about nature? The, well, the beauty and the function of nature. Okay. Those are two separate arguments. We can make one from beauty and one from function. Okay. The fact that we seem to find purpose in nature... Um, the fact that we have functionality at all. And then beauty. Beauty is a real puzzle. None of the animals seem to recognize beauty. We see beauty everywhere in the world. And the question is why? It does not seem to serve a natural evolutionary function. In fact, it's often pitted against utility. Right? Why in the world are you building that beautiful church? Don't you know you could have put all that money into giving to the poor? Remember Judas Iscariot was the first one that made that argument? Yeah, Judas Iscariot. Like, what, Judas? Yeah, you read the Bible. It's amazing, the stuff you find in there. Um, yeah, so beauty could be another argument. Okay, now, what do all these have in common? Do you see a general structure of argument that applies to every one of these to getting us to God? What is that? Well, origins isn't. Yeah, nature's tangible. But there are several of them like that. That's not an accident either. Once you start admitting to certain things in our experience that can't be reduced to matter, people get very uncomfortable and nervous. Okay, in my field in philosophy, people get really nervous 
And that's why they wanted to reduce everything to the material. Because they know, well, wait a minute, that's going to get us to God. Can't have that. Therefore, let's explain it away somehow. All right. So you do run into that problem. But then you have to get rid of so many things, potentially, right? Do you see a structure to all these arguments? How do they all work? See the structure? Every one of them says, we have this data point, this thing, and whatever it is over here. And we have a question. What explains this? So we're looking for an explanation. And then we say that God is either the best explanation, the only explanation, some kind of argument like that, and we say that God then is the causal explanation of this thing. So all of these arguments are what we might broadly call causal arguments for God's existence. Something in our world needs to be explained. The only or best explanation is God, therefore it's reasonable or necessarily the case that God has to exist. Everyone understand the structure? Okay. And what would we be able to know about God other than that he exists by that kind of argument? All and only those properties that are necessary to account for this stuff over here. So for example, let's suppose you made the argument from beauty. You would reasonably conclude, oh, if that worked, I'll bet you God has a pretty profound aesthetic sense. Right? If you saw extraordinary functionality and purposiveness, you might say, wow, God is a pretty brilliant designer. Uh, and he might have plans for things. So you might think, maybe God is providential. Right? So, notice what we get from these kinds of arguments. We're going to get a set of properties of God that are pretty broad and generic. But, would an argument of this causal kind tell us, for example, whether there are three persons in the Godhead, seven persons in the Godhead, one person in the Godhead? Right? That's going to be a tough one, isn't it? So, going back to what we said last week, there may be certain things about God that we can know according to natural reason. There may be others that are nevertheless true that we would never know unless he told us. In fact, since God is infinite, it follows that there are an infinite number of things that you would never know unless he tells us. And that means some of those things may ultimately prove important, and he may want to tell us. So, that's going to lead us into our second question. How would he go about doing that? But first, what can we know about God according to natural reason alone? And I told you there were something like 19 to 20 arguments of this kind last week. You've hit a whole bunch of them. All but one have this causal structure. So what we're going to do is look at the most generic of all of those, the broadest cosmic argument, a kind of origins one, and it's called the cosmological argument. Which one? If you say that you believe that God is the the best explanation for that, you're already assuming that God exists. That's the original question. Well, no, uh, it's a form of inference where you it's called inference to the best explanation, and you might say, well, let's look at all the rival explanations to this thing. We have this event, and we have to come up with an explanation. You'd say, well, what are the possibilities? Well, maybe aliens made this thing. Well, maybe God made this thing. Well, maybe a lesser God like Zeus made this thing. And you list all the possible explanations. 
right? And then the question is, which of those is the most likely? And you use a process like Occam's razor to try to eliminate the ones. Well, does this even explain the data? You work your way down. And then if you remember the famous Sherlock Holmes line, once you've eliminated all the other possibilities, the most even seemingly improbable becomes the one that's left. And that's the process that you would go with. So you're not saying from the beginning that God does exist. You're saying that if he did, he would explain this piece of data. Now, God being omnipotent means he can pretty much explain anything. So if there are rival explanations that really could do the job, they might be simpler. So the big question is, well, can those other rival explanations do the job? And that's where I was telling her, in some cases, natural processes may well account for certain things that in the past might have been used as arguments for God's existence. For example, back in the 18th century, people were fascinated with things like the human eyeball. They said, you know, this thing is more complicated. Well, did they even have cameras? No, they didn't have cameras yet. In the 1850s, they said, this is more you know, complicated than our cameras. Please don't tell me this just popped out of nowhere. That was the way they were treating natural processes, which, of course, we know that's not what they mean, right? But that was the way they were describing them. And you would say, well, obviously, this looks like a design system to me. So it's not natural, therefore not designed and arbitrary. Must be God created it. And these proofs became known as the design proofs. However, now that we've better understood how nature works, we know that the eyeball doesn't just come out of a rock, right? It's an extremely long, complex pro process of natural evolution. And eventually, things like eyes slowly, you know how it goes. So do you need God to exist in order for the eyeball to emerge from this other thing? Well, maybe not. So that particular argument might not be as compelling. Okay, any other questions before we start the argument? But wouldn't atheists say, well, with enough knowledge and information, all of the God arguments would no longer be compelling? They could certainly try to do that, but then we're arguing in a vacuum at that point. We could do the same thing back to them. Well, with enough knowledge and information, you would realize that all the God proofs work. Oh. So we can't argue from nothing. We've got to argue from something. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and in the cosmological argument case, this is not a probabilistic argument. Okay, this is the one we're going to show you is not a best explanation argument. It's a necessary argument. So you'll find this much more interesting, hopefully. Or you'll be able to shoot it down, and then we'll go with something else. <laughs> okay. So this argument is called the cosmological argument because we're trying to explain the origin of the cosmos. In other words, the world. The world exists, we want to know why. How to explain this thing. Okay? Now, let's look at what science tells us. What explains the origin of the world? Supposedly Big Bang. Not supposedly. All the evidence points back to what? A Big Bang. Okay, a massive explosion of all the energy that we can understand. And it all traces back to that one point at a certain point back in time. And there were debates about how far, but it's pretty far. Right? All mass energy, and including, interestingly, time and space. Right? Fascinating. All from one point. Now, what does that suggest to you? Did the universe have a beginning or not? Yes, yes it did. So, given our empirical investigation... All our evidence suggests the universe had a certain point where it began. Okay? That's very significant. It's not the end of the matter, but it's extremely significant. Because it means we had this enormous effect. 
And it's not unreasonable for us to ask of that effect the same question we would ask of any other effect, namely what? What caused it? We ask that question of all effects, all events. What caused it? So it would be improper for scientists to say, well, we can ask that question of everything but the Big Bang. We can reasonably ask it of the Big Bang, too. Now, at that point, there's a big problem for the empirical scientist because all the evidence is on this side of the bang. All right? So the best our empirical scientists seem to be able to do is go back to that point. And theists sometimes point out that, well, you've done a superb job. You've discovered the moment God created the world. Amazing. Right? And, of course, a materialist scientist, you can be a scientist and be a theist, obviously. But the materialist scientist, of course, doesn't want that. So he tries to come up with some other kind of explanation, or not any explanation at all, so that he can have the Big Bang and then end the inquiry. The question is, is that legitimate? Now, the cosmological argument doesn't worry about the question of where our sciences have found the origin of the universe. It even imagines a situation where it just keeps going before that. Okay, this argument is trying to cover all, possible po all the possibilities. So, let's look at it this way. Here's the world. And there's a whole bunch of causes and effects that lead to it. All right? This can be, you know, throughout time, whatever. And then there's either this series of causes and effects has a point of origin where it, that's where it starts, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then it keeps on going infinitely. So there is either a back in time, an infinite series of causes and effects, or there is not an infinite series of causes and effects, in which case there's a first event. Again, our scientists seem to think all the evidence points to first event. But if it turned out that that proved that God existed, a dogged atheist is going to immediately say what? Ah, what about the other side? So a good theist had better be prepared to talk about both. And good theists have been looking at this argument for almost 2,000 years, and they've been addressing both the whole time. So we'll talk about both sides. This, in, our, in logic, is known as a dilemma. Okay? Either A is true, or not A is true. The universe is either finite or it's infinite. And whether, either way, it's going to prove that God exists. If that's true, then God has to exist, doesn't he? But what we have to do is prove each of the lemmas, the dilemma, both sides of it. In a popular language, we think of a dilemma as a thorny or tough problem. Okay? But in logic, a dilemma means this kind of a structure. Okay, so the questions for us then is this. If there's a single origin point for the universe, does God exist? Then the second question is, if there's an infinite series of causes and effects, does God exist? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, then we'll know for sure that God exists. Don't describe, he spoke the worlds into existence. Yeah, if, that if, he, if he exists, then he okay. definitely did that. But... Well, it still speaks to the argument that there is a beginning, and, and the verse itself... Okay, does the verse solve the problem for us? Well, the verse clearly denotes that there was a before he spoke the world into existence. Sure, but can we use that as evidence in this case? No. See the problem? Yeah. Why can't we use Genesis 1 as evidence in this case? 
Because if Genesis 1 assumes that God exists. Yeah. Right. And what we're supposed to be proving is what? That God exists. Mm -hmm. So we can't argue in a circle. Right? So anything from the Bible that suggests that God exists is very interesting, but beside the point. Right? We'd have to make this argument from natural reason, otherwise we're not arguing on that basis. So those of you from Protestant backgrounds, like that, those Baptists that we talked about, me and my tradition, you know, all of our arguments were Bible-based. We thought everything had to come out of the Bible. The Bible is the sole source of authority. This is what we were told. This is not true. The sole source of authority is what's true. The reason the Bible is helpful for that is it's full of truths. But it's not the only book full of truths. Euclid is full of truths. Chemistry books are full of truths. Dietitian books occasionally get something right even. Politics, God only knows. Okay, so sola veritas, that is the word we're supposed to think. Sola veritas, solely truth. Only truth has the right to command our assent. And so we must be in love with the truth. And there's lots of truth that God made long before any Bibles existed, right? Of course. So, if there's a beginning point, why would we think that God would have to be the origin of that thing? Well, what explains this? Is that an unreasonable question? Every single other effect in the entire universe, we demand an explanation. It is the scientific method. And here we have the greatest explosion in history, and it's inexplicable? <coughs> That's curious. Does science say, I'm sorry, no, does science say it's inexplicable, or are there theories about how the Big Bang? There are theories. Okay. They become very interesting. They become versions of, it's an infinite regress, or... Isn't there evidence There's another one of these. The universe is expanding? Yeah, that's proof. Empirical. That's part of the empirical evidence that the Big Bang is the original origin of the whole thing. Yeah. And as we'll see shortly, it's not just the space is expanding, it's that time is expanding. See, we have this Newtonian conception that the universe is expanding, it's stuff... <laughs> that's moving into an empty place. That's not what they mean. They mean it's expanding and there's nothing on the outside, which is really weird. All right, what explains the origin? If this is the origin of all physical space-time, then whatever explains it has to be what? Outside. Think about why. This is the first event. Well, it can't be space-time itself. What can't be? The cause of the space-time. Yes, that would be explaining yourself. Right. And we can ask the question, why can't we ask the question why space-time exists? Right? Right. What explains that? The point is this. This is the first event. Events, by definition, are in time. It follows that if this something explains this out here, whatever we're going to call that, eventually we'll call it creation. All right? 
Whatever makes this happen has to be non-temporal. Because if it's temporal, it's back here again. So what we're talking about is the capacity to produce things in a non-temporal way. That's weird. Okay? So, so far, what we have is a non-temporal explainer. And that follows from this first event. There has to be this thing. Now, what else do we know about this thing? Well, we're going to do something really strange. I'm going to apply the explanation demand on this. I mean, you know what the atheist is going to say, right? If you're going to say the Big Bang requires God's existence, then I'm going to apply the same rule that you use to demand the Big Bang's explanation. I'm going to apply it to your God. What explains God? And at that point, most theists get very nervous. And so the atheist says, this is what I'm saying. You don't want to explain your God? I'm not going to have to explain the Big Bang. Let's all go home and be happy. You irrational, crazy, anti-scientific people, go and do your stuff, and the rest of us will get on in the real world. Right? We're supposed to be nervous with that question. I, of course, I'm not nervous with that question. I think it's a great question. Let's say, well, maybe we should ask it. They certainly haven't, and theists are allegedly too scared to. What explains God? Well, that's correct. So whatever the explanation is, it can't be temporal. Let's think about what could explain God, because this is really interesting. Let me use an example. Hmm. Let's suppose we were playing billiards. And I, the rack's right there. I'm going to break the ball. And you watch that cue ball hit there and start to move the balls. And you watch a couple of balls go into the pockets. You're like, oh, not too bad. Then a few more, you say, Impressive. And then you start to watch some weird stuff. Balls stop. Others, they let go, some go by. It's very courtesy, very courteous. Okay, some jump in the air and jump over and roll over there. And in the end, every single ball goes in the pocket. And I march over. Grab your $200. All right, see you tomorrow. And you say, not so fast, buddy. Right? You didn't do that. I said, sure I did. You just saw me. And at that point, you launch an investigation, right? You look under the table, and you immediately find the gyroscopes and the magnets. <laughs> so you see, Dr. Teal, we knew for a while, you don't have the ability to do that. I am not a sufficient explanation for that effect. Do you agree? What's the rule? Anything that's the cause of an effect must have the resources to explain the effect. Yes? Okay. So if we're talking here about God, I'm over here. That's right. What can explain God? It has to have the resources to produce the effect, yes? All right. So, can whatever produce God be less than God? No. Not less. Okay? So, the only other options that are greater than or equal to. Okay. Can there be any being greater than God? No. Nope. By definition, he's supposed to be infinitely perfect, right? Therefore, that's out as well. It's not less either. The only remaining option is equal to. Can there be two gods? No. Why? I'm sure 
Okay, why? Because there can be two. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, because uh, it doesn't make sense that there can't be two. Oh, it doesn't? Listen, my pagan friend. Yeah. I know you love Hera and Athena and all your lovely Greek deities. I'm not talking Greek deities. What is different about God from all those other interesting, finite spiritual beings? God versus via God is what kind of being? Is he a finite? Well, it's kind of hard to not argue without referring to the scripture. He is the Alpha and Omega. Meaning what? Take it out of the metaphor. He existed beyond the beginning. Keep going. And he exists beyond the end. Okay, therefore he is infinite. infinite. Yes. Okay, so can there be two infinite beings? That's the question. We're not asking the question whether Hera and Zeus can both exist. Of course they can both exist. Can two infinite beings exist? Why? They would cancel each other out. Aha! Exactly. If they are both omnipotent, you have a contradiction. Now, I know some of you were next-generation Star Trek fans, and you think back to the Q continuum, and you're saying, are you telling me Q can't exist? You got that right. No Q continuum, no huge group of infinite beings that are all omnipotent. That is a contradiction. There can be only one. Not true, sorry. So can there be a God equal to God to produce God? No. No. Well, but why are you saying that they would have to come into conflict with each other? The possibility of the conflict, the possibility of a contradiction is also a contradiction. Did modal logic. Possibly necessarily falsehood is a necessary falsehood. Because by definition, a necessary falsehood is impossible. So to say it's possible is a contradiction. Okay, now this is weird. You're like, wait a minute. I thought we were trying to explain what accounts for God, and you've eliminated all the possibilities. Right. What does that mean? Can God have a cause? No. But then the argument then just be that God doesn't, then God doesn't exist. No. If he doesn't have a cause. Oh, that doesn't follow. Exists. We know he exists because we've already shown if there's a finite regress, something had to have accounted for that that's outside of time. And then the, our atheist friend said, well, I demand an explanation of your explainer. And we said, okay, let's look at the possibilities. The only explanation for God is what? That God is independently existing. In other words, God is the only thing whose existence does not have an outside explainer. Because by definition, it is impossible for anything to explain God other than God, and there can be no other God. Hence, if God exists, he exists and that's it. There's no further back question. So our atheist friend is now in serious trouble because we did answer his question, didn't we? We said, okay, let's ask the question, what explains God? Answer, nothing in principle. So now we go back here and say, now you finish answering that question and tell us why the Big Bang could not have a cause. Because we just told you why God couldn't have a cause. Okay, sorry. But can we go back for a sec? Let's go back. So when you said you gave attributes to God yeah. that were omnipotent? Yes. Right? Infinite, because we have a trans-temporal explainer, an eternal one. I see. So you got to those qualities yes. because of the 
the creation of that yes. single point had to been come from something with those qualities. Correct. We didn't just give him random qualities like Correct. omnipotence and omnipotence and all that because that's what we think God is. Right. Well, there may be other attributes we'd have to derive. We're only talking about the ones necessary for this explanation. Right. God may have countless other attributes of which we know nothing. Uh, he may have countless other attributes that we can derive once we get this thing, which is actually true. <laughs> okay. But right now, we're only talking about those powers necessary to produce this effect. Okay. And it has to be a trans-temporal, right. thus eternal, yes. not in time, power capable of producing this effect. And here's the problem. If God caused it, there cannot be a further cause. We can't push the regress back on God. God is, the, is it. Okay, so if God exists, nothing accounts for him. He is the account for everything else. His existence is independent of everything else. Everything else depends on him. To be eternal, to be omnipotent, to be an independently existing thing, it's all the same thing. So historically, we'll sometimes say of God that he is an uncaused cause. Okay, and we're not cheating by doing that. We're not making that up. You understand? Yes. We're saying, if you want to try to explain God, be our guest. But those are the only three possibilities, and they all entail a contradiction. So God cannot be caused. Yeah? Does Judaism now accept the Big Bang? Uh, the I, still... There are at least a thousand different sects of Judaism, so you got me. Because that would then go to, I think, his point like with Genesis, right? if you're willing to accept the Big Bang Theory, you then have to deal with the contradictory aspect of God then in seven days creating everything. Oh, that's Versus a completely different issue. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The origin claim in Genesis 1 says that God created everything. Okay? How he did it is a completely different question. And different Christian, Judaic, religious groups all dispute what the meaning is of Genesis 1 through 3. And if you look closely at the text, Genesis 1 and 2 actually contradict each other. So, when you have a case like that, and you see something that looks like myth, like the Jewish myth stories, like all the other ones, right? You think, hmm, maybe this is mythological. And then you have all this evidence that says this goes way back in time, and it doesn't seem to fit that picture, right? And then you can say, yeah, but isn't it possible that God just made it all look like that? Right? But in reality, he did it all in seven days, and that is possible. He's very powerful. He could do all kinds of things. But then he's a deceiver, right? Because he made a situation where all the evidence points to something that's not true, and that doesn't seem to fit the non deceptive God quality. So if the only thing we can do is to save Genesis 1 story perfectly, literally, is to say that God is a deceiver, we're going to have to give that up. And so the Roman church, long time ago, realized that. The scientists are going to have to look at the question of how this actually happened. There may be certain points where God's intervention is definitively necessary. And human nature is one of those, and we'll see that. But the general story, the question of Genesis 1 saying God created everything, that's just the way that, that's a general claim. Seven days or six days and this one and first of this one, that's a completely separate issue. So you can be a theist, you can be a Christian theist, Catholic Christian theist, the whole nine yards, and believe in evolutionary biology, no problem whatsoever. Think of it this way. Remember what I said week one. When God makes the saint, he does not unmake the man. Okay, what God gives with nature, he does not take away with grace. Grace completes nature. 
So as Christians, it's not like we're on the side of religion against science. Because then we lose, right? Because we have this little bit of truth and they have everything. This is the actual view. God created the world and we use all our scientific capabilities to study it. That's all in common. Christians, non-Christians, atheists, theists, all together. And then on top of that, we religious people have a little extra. Now, we have, still have to explain how we can have a little extra. That's that second question. But we have it all plus. It's not science versus religion at all. That's the way it's been foisted on us by the new atheism. But that's complete nonsense, and the church has never viewed it that way. Catholicism is highly intellectual regarding science. It has been for a, a thousand years. Because we're interested in truth. Sure. Yeah. God does not handicap the mind. He tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So no shelving the mind. It's the whole person. Okay, so if there's a finite regress, the only possible explanation is God. Everyone got that so far? And now you know where our atheist friends are going to go. Of course, clearly the universe is infinite. I've been saying that for years. <laughs> You say, yeah, but look at the empirical evidence. It all goes back to one point in time. Well, that's what they say today. God only knows what they'll say tomorrow. Well, no, I couldn't say God only knows. I've denied God's existence. But we have to be thorough, do we not? Look at all the possible angles like Columbo. So what about this last thread? What if it were infinite? What if it kept going? Well, that's a good question. What if it keeps going? Well, yes. But that can still create a first event, or it goes on forever. But it needn't be an expansion. It could be changing in other ways, but that's one possibility. There's different ones now. There's the accordion universe, and there's also the multiplicity of universes, and then the latest one is the infinite multiplicity of universes. Although that doesn't help the atheists, right? Do you see why? If every possible universe exists then so do all the ones with who in it? God. And if God is necessary, it follows he's in all of them. So that's a terrible move that they don't seem to realize this. Okay. Infinite. What if it keeps going? Well, here's the thing about this. This is very interesting, right? If it keeps going, then there's not a first event that we have to explain. And so it might seem like they're out. Everything's explained. Whew. We were so close to having to get on our knees. And then we managed to stand up as men, right? Well, is that true? Is that the end of the matter? Or are there things we can still ask about the whole regress? Does that explain everything? Does it, It's going on forever. Right, it's going on forever, which means there's no God? Well, well they're sense. not saying there is no God. They're saying... The existence of the universe doesn't entail there's a God. Remember, the burden of proof is on us to prove there's a God. They're just saying, I, that doesn't prove it. Now, atheism has to prove there is no God technically, but like I told you last week, real atheists are pretty much agnostics. They just don't understand what they're saying usually. Well, very often. Okay, so back to this question. What remains to be explained? Let me give you two questions that have not been answered if the universe goes on forever. Question number one. Why this universe? 
as opposed to another one. Question number one. For example, why not the Tolkien universe? Why doesn't that one exist? Or the Bugs Bunny universe? Or Game of Thrones universe? Well, I mean, so far we have no evidence of that. In other words, there's a lot of possibilities. The only way to get around this is to say they all exist, right? To just declare it, and that's what they've done with the infinite universe hypothesis. But that, of course, entails God exists. So that doesn't work. So it is curious that this is the one. Is it unreasonable to ask the question why? No. But here's the real killer. Question number two. Why does anything exist at all? Why not just nothing? That's a big problem. Because if there's something rather than nothing, what explains that? And to explain it in terms of more contingent somethings that all depend on everything else doesn't really solve the problem. In fact, the only thing that could explain something that doesn't have any explanation is what? Yes, God. Because if God exists, he's independent. doesn't depend on anything else. His existence is necessary. So therefore, the only answer to this question is that there's a necessary being in there. And that is God. And therefore, whether the universe is finite or infinite, God has to exist. Everyone understand the proof? You said this is very hard. Oh, you got that right. This is very complex. Why does there have to be a It comes back to that. Being? Why can't there just be beings? Because a necessary being is a being whose existence is explained entirely by himself. He doesn't have an outside explanation. What's the only way you could not have an outside cause? You have to be infinitely powerful. Right? So therefore, the only way to be a necessary being is to have what? Infinite power. The only way to have infinite power is to be God. Therefore, only God can be a necessary being. So in philosophy, we say God is independent, we are all dependent. God is necessary, we are all contingent. And thus, when God acts in this way, that's why we, we save this word in theology alone for him. He creates. And creation is an act that is not in time, it's eternal. So all these arrows from the outside are God creation. Okay, any other questions? All right, now what attributes can we get out of God from this? All and only those attributes that are necessary to account for the data, the universe, and necessary to account for God's existence. So what do we know about God from this proof? Intentional. Good. Keep going. What else? Intelligent. How intelligent? 
has intelligence. How intelligent? Infinite. Good. Omni. There you go. We got our first Omni. Whoops. Omni. It's called Omni. Scientia Omniscient. He's real smart. Okay. We also know he's infinitely powerful. So omnipotence. Maybe. Who said that? Yeah. That's a term people use, but what does that mean? See, for you and me, it's easy to be present. You're present. But what does a being who's a spirit mean to be present? It means he knows what's going on, and what else? He can... He can change what's going on. He can do something about it. In other words, omniscience and omnipotence. It's not clear that this concept of omnipresence adds anything to what we already know from those other two. And that's why classically we give God three omni-attributes, and the third one actually isn't omnipresence, but what? Well, that's a function of omnipotence. Omnibenevolence. Now you say, I don't see that. He's always good. We still have to prove that. That is true, but I'll have to explain that to you by way of an argument. Took me 10 years to figure that out. It bothered me for years. Like, why couldn't he just be an evil demon who made us all? You know? This is what keeps philosophers awake, you know? <laughs> now you know why you, you, know, you pay for us in universities. We actually accomplish something, you know, now and then. Okay, so the three, and, and notice what else? He's intentional and he acts. Creation is an act, isn't it? Yes. An intelligent thing that acts is called a what? Ready? Here we go. This is huge. God is not a force. God is a person. He's an agent. He's an actor. This is hugely important. All right? So, all of this we can learn and many other attributes simply according to natural reason. And you can run the kind of argument we just did with some of those other qualities, like beauty and some of those others, and get various moves. If you're interested in those, we can give you a great uh, additional author or book to read. Am I out of time already? How much do I have? I only have a half hour? Okay. Well, uh, all right. Good. Any questions? None? Okay. (laughs) If you want to... Get up, walk about, grab a water or a cookie. This would be a good time while I erase the board because you need your blood moving for part two. We're going to talk about faith, and that's going to be glorious. It seems like a giant jump from act to person. Well, but are you talking about personhood as in something that has agency? Yes, that's it. Only agency. Okay, so you're talking about physical force. Not at all. Of a Right. Because the angels are persons, even though they don't have physicality. Yep. Very good distinction. Very good. Yes, personhood. Yep. Half hour, huh? Don't be mad at me. Be mad at the clock. Those clocks. Who made those? Germans, of course.
Okay, so we've answered the first question. Can we know anything about God from natural reason? And the answer is yes. We know that God exists. We know that he's one. We know that he's omnipotent. We know that he's a being of pure spirit rather than matter, since matter is created, has space, right? And there's lots of other additional ones you can learn in metaphysics or uh, philosophy of religion. Second question, are there additional truths about God that we don't know from natural reason? Well, since God is infinite, it follows there are infinite number of things that could be known about him. Hence, an infinite number of truths. Do we know an infinite number of truths about God? No. So it follows there are countless additional truths about God that we do not know. Agreed? So are there additional truths? You got it. Can we know any of them? Well, that's what's weird. You would think the answer would be no. We just, we just looked at the argument, what you get out of it, on the basis of that causal argument. And yet, our creed is full of additional ones. What are some of the things in the creed that have nothing to do with that? First section. Give me an example of a claim that we make about God that doesn't come from the cosmological argument. We seem to know something extra. God, creator in heaven and earth. Invisible, got it, yep. Well, we got that too. He already made everything, including the seen and the unseen. True, yep. Those of you who know the creed have the advantage. You're eliminating all the first section. Excellent work. Keep going. Who who was begotten, not made? What's that now? Who? God. I'm sorry, I didn't see any names in here. Any no Jesuses? You're saying God is a son all of a sudden? Did you, any of you see a sun pop out of there? I didn't see any suns. God, God, God is from begotten, God, life, life from light, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Who? The sun. All right, so we believe something that doesn't come out of the cosmological argument, at least one thing. Name of the God is the Son. Well, that's new. The Holy Spirit. Oh, so there's a yet another one. Yes. So now we got three. What do we call that? The Trinity. I mean, honestly, there's exactly and only three persons in the Godhead? Look, we know there's a person in the Godhead, right? There has to be, because God is a person. But why three? Why not 75? Why not two? Why three? I mean, that's a good question, right? How do we know God has a son? Good question. How do we know there's life after death? Good question. Right? Look through the rest of the creed. All these things are popping out. How do we know all this stuff? Look, there are additional truths about God. God may be interested in us knowing them. If so, he may want to reveal them to us because that's what it would take we certainly wouldn't have known unless we were told could God if he wanted to tell people additional things about himself that weren't just known through philosophical argumentation sure is that unfitting no God can do what he wants he has prerogative yeah that's why we still study the Greek, Greek philosophers in, in seminaries because there are elements of truth in what they yes. wrote. Loaded. Even though they're not Christian, they're not, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Next week we'll be doing the, our Greek argument for the good. So don't you worry, we're going to keep seeing that. But this is extraordinary that God could reveal them to us. So I'm going to reveal one that hasn't been revealed to you right now, okay? Because I was thinking, actually, I'd like you to join my religion instead of his. So I'm a prophet. I know that's hard to believe, but I am. <laughs> And I shaved the beard, okay, and got rid of the stick. 
I saw that Evan Almighty, and I thought, he's not making us look good. You know what I'm saying? So I had a revelation from God last night. I was you know, praying to L. Ron Hubbard, and I got this great vision. And I th- realized that if you eat three lollipops a day, you're going to go to heaven. So what I figured, that's a lot easier than the Catholic Church. Well, so. I'm sorry, but you have some di- rules. You're going to have to bring the lollipops. Exactly. Okay, so there you go. How many of you would rather join my religion for the three lollipops? Well, there's one. Okay. Anyone else? Going once. Oh, she- I got my wife. Excellent. My son is rejecting me. Excellent. Well, you should have gotten in early, I guess. I mean, you see what the problem is? Anybody can come and say, oh, Yes, God definitely reveals these truths. Isn't it convenient that he does it through me? Therefore, why don't you come to my building and all I'll need is all your money, all your freedom, all your trust, your children, your wives, right? All, everything. Yeah, that's great. And then you say, boy, you seem like a cult leader. What's the difference between revealed religion and cults? Okay. But how do we know? Because what's the difference with my, I mean, why should we believe your crazy doctrine of the Trinity and reject my glorious lollipop doctrine? Now, see, I can see the mockery in your eyes. Oh, Dr. Teal, you're no prophet. Okay? You didn't write a book about lollipops. Well, my sixth book, my sixth book is Eat Lollipops on Your Way to Heaven. Right? You're like, no, 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 you are a charlatan. You're like David Koresh or Jim Jones. Yes, if I were telling you the truth about lollipops, falsehoods about lollipops, I would be like those people. Well, I'm not going to talk about any miracles. I'd rather just use talk about spiritual things. Yes, well, I'll put my lollipops in my mouth is maybe. But so what really what you're asking is how do we know that those people and you the lollipop dude from the Wizard of Oz? Yes. Here's the problem. Is how do you know that they are separate from this? What is it that separates them? Here's the problem. Every person who's claiming to give you a divine message, claiming to give you something God revealed, right? Right. And it's not something that's up here and knowable through natural reason. So your natural reasoning process cannot evaluate whether that is verified, can it? You can't tell whether God is three in person or 26 in person using natural reason. You can realize there's no contradiction. He's three in one way and one in another. No contradiction. That means it's not necessarily false. It doesn't follow that it's true. So how do we know? And then you've got all these different people, prophets, alleged. Because a prophet is a person, right, who's claiming to give you a divine message. And look at them all. Intriguing how they come out of the woodwork once divine power is attached to it. And let me tell you something. You can make a lot of money in false religion. Believe me, we could run a great show. Right? Yes. So you thought about that? Unfortunately. Not really. (laughs) How do you know? Who's David Koresh? And let's put the question another way. Who does this Jesus guy think he is? Right? Why the should we believe Jesus and reject Koresh? Well, can I refer to scripture or are we still not? 
Yes. He wasn't doing it for profit or gain. Who, Jesus? Yes. Well, let's see. Profit. Now he got that coin from the fish and paid the tax. Okay, so that's true. He was claiming gain. Before Abraham was born. Okay, there you go. He's even worse worse than Koresh. At least Koresh had some humility, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's Lyre Lunatic Lord. Okay. I'm skipping ahead. What we have to think about is this. How do we tell this? Right? We have to have a method of discrimination. A method of figuring out who's authentic and who's a fraud. Right. Otherwise, we subject ourselves to every Tom, Dick, and Harry charlatan. You right. agree? It's how we, how do we differentiate? Exactly. Okay. How do we differentiate? Because here's the problem. When you ask the prophet why you should trust him for this divine religion, divine message, what do they always tell you? You need to have what? Faith. 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 And what is faith? Let's say trust. The, um... Trust. So. Well, the Bible says it's evidence. Well, that is curious. Because that's not the definition of faith. That's common. Most people think faith is a leap in the dark. It's the, evidence of the Hebrews text says that evidence is the evidence of what is hoped for, what is unseen. Okay? You don't see the Trinity, do you? So how is faith the evidence of what is unseen? The New Testament says faith is evidential and substantial. It is not an anti-rational mode. It is a human, rational mode. In fact, we use it in non-religious contexts all the time. But you don't know that yet because we don't know what it is. The problem is all these guys said the same thing. Now, here's the issue. We cannot evaluate the divine message except insofar as we know other things that are already true. And it better not contradict those. Right? So the only thing left to evaluate is the prophet. But the prophet says we need to have faith in him as well as the divine message. Do you see the problem? Do you evaluate the prophet's works then? I think we're going to have to evaluate the prophet. Oh, okay. Here's the thing. We know we can't evaluate the divine message, right? That's the whole point. So if somebody says, I'm bringing you a divine message, we need to ask him a question. Who are you? And why should we believe you? And you better have something better than Koresh and Joseph Smith. Oh, I love it when the Mormons come. They say, well, if Joseph Smith is a prophet. I say, well, if Joseph Smith is a prophet, we should all become Mormons. They're like, yes! I'm like, why don't you come on in? Let's have a chat. <laughs> okay? Because we have to evaluate the prophet. We cannot evaluate the content of the message. So we must instead evaluate the veracity of the messenger. I admit that's fascinating and definitely different from Koresh. Let's go back to that story of Exodus. Do you remember we talked about this last week? Because Moses was worried about this problem. He's out there. Burning bush story, take your feet off, shoes rather, <laughs> take your shoes off his holy ground. All right, I'm the Lord your God. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses is like, I was with you up to that point, and I'm sorry, I have an objection. And I says, okay, what's your objection? Well, uh, if you look at me, I'm obviously about 80 years old. I'm very old. And if I go and tell the Israelites that I'm a prophet, they're going to think I'm a nut. I came out of the wilderness after all. 
And then when I go to Pharaoh, this is not going to fly, right? If my own people won't believe me, Pharaoh's never going to believe me. And here is what is so interesting about God's reaction. God does not condemn Moses for his lack of faith. He says, you're right. They wouldn't believe you, and I wouldn't either. Because you do look like a crazy guy. Okay, that was ad-lib, okay? Deacon's getting nervous. That's not in the text. Well, in the Hebrew, no, that's not. I ad-lib a little bit. All right, but you see the problem. God is aware of the problem. He says, you're right, Moses. Throw your stick on the ground. And Moses throws down the stick, and it turns into a serpent. And Moses is like, whoa, that's impressive. That's different. Pick it up. Do I have to? Yes, all right. Not a snake anymore. It turns back into a stick. But then he says, let's try something else. Moses, put your hand in your bosom. Puts it in his shirt. Take it out. Leprous. <gasps> put it back in. Not leprous. Leprous. Not leprous. You can imagine him enjoying that for a little bit, right? That's impressive. This is getting better. What else you got for me? God says, okay. Talk, talks to him about how to turn water into blood. Not one. Not two. Three signs. Moses is backed by God when God chooses him to be a messenger. Notice something. God has to back his messenger. If he doesn't, then he imposes on our rational minds because it puts us in the position of not being able to tell a true prophet from a charlatan. As St. John said explicitly, try the spirits, test them to see whether they are of God or not. So we have a duty to inquire, to investigate. Moses knew that and said, I'm going to need something to show that I got this from a supernatural cause. God says, fine, how about some supernatural effects? Supernatural effect, supernatural cause. Yeah, that makes sense. Miracles are supernatural effects. So he goes over there and he begins the whole thing. And he doesn't just do those signs, does he? He then launches into the plagues. Plague after plague after plague. Massive demonstrations of divine power. And then there's the whole chasing of the Israelites into the wilderness. Remember this? First, you got the huge cloud by day. That's different. Fire pillar by night. Definitely new. Right? Gets to the Red Sea. Oh, well, maybe God gave up on us. Then stick up. Water up. Run through. Moses, stick back up again. Stick up. Water as the Egyptians go through the river and wipe down. Now, if you're an Israelite, are you starting to think maybe there's something to this Moses guy? And then you get to Mount Sinai, and the thing is thundering and rocking, right? Would it be irrational for you to think to yourself, you know, I think Moses really speaks for God. Would that be irrational? Wouldn't you instead be crazy if you said, no, I don't think there's any God talking to Moses? What else would God have to do to convince you that Moses was legit? Right? And so we come to what's called the cluster theory of miracles. That when God wants to make a major revelatory play, he backs his prophet in triplicate. And triplicate is in quotes. The reality is a massive miracle cluster. There have only been two events in history where this has happened. Now, you might say, well, I've heard about miracles here and there all over the place. Sure. 
But those aren't attestation miracles. Those aren't miracles designed to back a divine message. God can do miracles whenever he wants. And occasionally something happens here and there, and it might be a miracle. There may even have been miracles occasionally in the pagan world. None of that matters a bit to what we're talking about right now. We're only talking about those cases where somebody claims to be a prophet from God, speaking additional truths of a divine nature. And we say, why should we believe you? Why are you, do you truly believe, should be believed as a prophet of God? And then we get a massive amount of evidence to support it. Moses is the first one, and of course that's the foundation of Judaism, the giving of the law, yeah? And when was the other one? Well, that's one event. The resurrection is another event. Give me the cluster. The events surrounding both Passovers actually are the clusters of miracles. Well, there's the wedding at Cana where he turns the water into wine. So that's the first one. And then he goes on to do healing. And then he goes on to the mountain and he's... It goes on and on and on. And is it just Cana? No. For Jesus, it's even more spectacular than that. He's not even born yet and miracles are happening. This old woman, all of a sudden, gives birth to John. And then Mary, a virgin, is suddenly giving birth. And then there's angels in the sky. And then there's this, and then there's this, on and on and on. You understand what's happening here? A massive display. There's the baptism, right, where Jesus is baptized. And the Father, Son, and the Father, and the Spirit come down and testify in audible terms to the people. Right? Now, here's the thing. You might be suspicious of some of these things. Right? The feeding of the 5,000, you're looking like... They probably had the bread hidden somewhere. Come on, right? Uh, okay, what about when Jesus walks on water? You're like, turtle hopping. <laughs> okay, what about when he spoke and the winds and the seas died down immediately? You're like, oh, that's a little harder. Coincidence, or his friends were all fishermen. They probably told him, ready, Jesus? Three, two, one, now. <laughs> Except, of course, they were the ones he was doing it for. There was no other audience, right? What about the transfiguration? You're like, okay, you got me on that one. What about bringing Lazarus back from the dead after he was definitively dead for three days just in case anyone said, well, he wasn't really dead? You see the point? Look, you might be skeptical of that one. You might be skeptical of this one. You might say, I don't know about that one. But at some point, it begins to weigh us down. It starts to become increasingly difficult. Jesus spends all day healing every single person that comes to him and not like these faith healers we hear about, right? Half the time, you don't even know the person was ever sick. Yeah? Imagine somebody going into a cancer ward where everybody's dying and bed by bed, simply touching them and saying a word, and they're all better for life. That's it. Until they died, you know, 16 years later or something else. Would that get your attention? That's what Jesus was doing on a daily basis. Massive clusters. Why? Because the revelation of Jesus to the church is the greatest revelation ever. And so God has got to back this up. Now, what about rival miracles? What if the devils created their own miracles to contest this? And again, we have evidence of this. This happened, right? Last week, we talked about those priests of Egypt who were able to duplicate some of Moses' first miracles. Look, if there are spiritual powers of good, there could easily be finite spiritual powers of evil. And to be a spiritual power is to be a being capable of manipulating matter with their minds. That's what that means to be an angel or demon. And so, can they do certain stuff? Of course. And they did. And Pharaoh's like, look at that. My guys are pretty good. 
But then what happened? From start to finish, we start to see the tables turning because God keeps backing Moses with what? Superior power. Moses' snake eats all the other ones. Unfortunate for those guys. At the plague of the boils, the priests themselves, the sources themselves, got the boils. They couldn't get rid of them. They're like, oh, this is really painful. This is horrible. We can't get rid of this. And Pharaoh's like, oh, these guys. I mean, come on. You're being victimized by his God? And it just went on and on and on. Here's the point. Not only must God back his messenger, he must back him in such a way that it's definitive. Because God is omnipotent. And the true God has the greater power. So, when we say we believe these things by faith, what we mean is this. We believe in the veracity of the messenger, Moses and Jesus, as foundations, and then all the guys that follow from them. All right? We believe the veracity of the messenger on the basis of evidence. So that because the messenger is legitimate, because Jesus is the Son of God, the miracles show that he is divine being. It follows that when he says things, they are truths. And therefore, even though we cannot directly verify them, we can trust that what he says is true. That's faith. If you've ever been in a jury box, you had to use this method. Somebody gets on the witness stand, and they make a claim about what they saw. Well, as a juror, you weren't there, were you? How do you know they're telling the truth? You can't directly verify that claim. And so the prosecutor tries to make it out like the witness is a reliable person. So uh, I hear you go to church, huh? Yeah, I'm going to church. Yeah, I hear you have a wife and kids. Yeah. I hear you vote. Yeah, definitely vote. Did military service? Oh, yeah. And so the juror is like, pretty good person, right? Probably uh, tells the truth on the stand. And then what do you think the defense attorney tries to do? Tear him down, right? The only thing he can do. Because the question is now a question of character. Yeah, that's it. That's all we can look at. Is this the sort of person who tells the truth on the stand? Because we can't independently verify what he saw. We have to trust him. If you trust him on the basis of the evidence that he's a legitimate truth teller, that is faith. So we use faith all the time. Religious faith is when you trust the veracity of the message the truth of the divine message on the basis of good evidence that the messenger is legit. And so faith is, as St. Thomas calls it, a species of reasoning. It is not irrational at all. When God makes the saint, he does not unmake the man. Ours is a fully human religion. It is good for men, and it takes advantage of human faculties. Why? Because of what God is trying to do, which is complete us as human beings. If he expected us to throw our minds away and just believe something that's insane, right, it would not work. Okay. Questions about how faith functions? Got one? So close? Oh, I want to know why departments don't get to keep their profit. <laughs> well, we asked the question, why is Joseph Smith a prophet? And if you look at the origin story and the six different changes he goes through, well, that's what you, we went to Utah. We had a great time. We went to the temple. Well, we couldn't get in. They wouldn't let us in. But we did the outside investigation. And oh my gosh, it's so crazy. It doesn't pass any doesn't pass any evidential test. It doesn't. No, they even set them up. They even set them up back in the 1800s. 
Yeah, they uh, brought him some plates with alleged writing on it, okay? That was all different weird shapes. And he put his special glasses, the so-called Urim and Thummim, which allowed him allegedly to translate them and give a divine message. And they looked similar to what these other plates were supposed to be. And so he translated and everything, and they had made them up in the workshop the day before to test, you know, to see whether he could tell the fraud. An authentic prophet would be like, well, nice try, guys. Remember when the guys tried to buy the Holy Spirit's power from Peter? Remember, Peter wasn't taking any of that. So, yeah, you got to just, if you, once you look into these, nobody has cluster theories like this. Nobody. The real rival is Muhammad. I mean, that's the other one. There's only three interactive theisms of any significance. Judaism, which we have no problem with because it's our foundation and, and uh, forefathers. So we're, yes, Moses. Christianity, obviously we think Jesus is God, so that's easy. And the last rival is Muhammad. But there's nothing. He has no cluster of miracles backing him. He doesn't present the faith, the, the Islamic way, by way of an appeal to reason, right? The church for 400 years had nothing but love and reason to go with. And we converted the entire Roman Empire. And then when we finally had some power, the barbarians came. Remember when Constantine finally became powerful? And the barbarians wiped out all the Roman power. And then we converted all them too. Not with the sword, right? We didn't have the sword. So what worked? How did this happen? Truth and love, and the massive evidence of what God had done in Jesus. In Muhammad, you don't find that. It's always whoosh, the sword. Spreading throughout Arabia and all the way to Iberia, all the way up into Turkey, always by conquest. Not miracles. He didn't have any miracles? There's only two alleged miracles. Well, three, okay, if you want to count the book. One is the book, the Quran, but that gets us into what we were talking about the Bible. If we justify it by appeal to the book, yeah. The rock from heaven, but that does appear to be a meteorite. They won't let us near it to inspect it, right? Can't even go to the city unless you're Islam. And, of course, the last one is some people allege he flew away to heaven at the end, ascended. That's the best we got. So, And also, if you look at the content of Islam, there's nothing interesting or new, really. Yes, and the ethical so rules. Yeah, and the ethical rules are all known according to natural reason, and the religious rules, like you should fast. Yeah. The, the Buddhists have been doing this. We have been doing that. The Jews. I mean, where's the addition of a new revelation? What Jesus brings is astonishing, in its complexity and depth. Right. I mean, the church is an entirely new institution for human beings. We had the family and the state. All of a sudden, we get this third estate. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, you, you, you can't keep... Yeah, it. love is greater than justice. Whoever knew? Yeah. Absolutely blows us away, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus just goes on and on. And people that carefully read the New Testament, they're just shocked. Yeah, it's truly astonishing. Plus, Islam forbids something we know has to be true. Real quick okay. argument. Yeah, there has to be at least two persons. Has to be at least two. Because God is love. It's not just that he loves. He is love. That means prior to creation, he had to be love. And to love means you must have at least two. A love and a beloved. So there has to be at least two persons in the Godhead. Islam explicitly forbids that. Which is why Allah doesn't love you. I remember asking my Islamic students, well, does Allah love you? They're like, no. It's like, well, 
Not good. Why do you worship a God who doesn't even love you? The answer is fear. Right? But our greatest commandment isn't to fear God. It's to love God. And we love him, as St. John says, because he first loved us, because he is love. So God, the lover, is the father. God, beloved, is the son, which means there has to be at least two. Interior of the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount is there's a repudiation in Arabic of the Trinity and of Jesus as the Son of God. They acknowledge him as a prophet, but there's considerable effort to repudiate the Trinity as as the, the Son of God. Right, and that's another problem. Once you have an established thing, right, the next one, if it contradicts the message you already have, is a problem. Right? The first ones tend to circumscribe what the next ones can do. Nothing in authentic Judaism forbids the idea that God has a son. In fact, it's hinted at throughout the prophets. This is why the early Christians were making this argument, and you can read those arguments in Acts and in Matthew and in the book of Hebrews. They're extremely compelling. So much so that the remaining Jews, after the destruction of the temple, decided to quickly go back to Hebrew because the Greek... Old Testament that the Christians were using was so clear, so decisive about the fact that Jesus fulfilled the Messianic promises. And Hebrew is much vaguer. And so the arguments all changed. So let's go back to Hebrew. And it helped them squash those, those Christian arguments. So it's extremely compelling. And you can read those if you read Matthew carefully and those acts. Okay, any other questions? We surely are out of time, yes? Are we badly out of time? Badly out of time. Okay, I'm sorry. Any other questions? Okay, think of things this week. You want to ask at the beginning of the next time, we can do that. All right? Yes? Just want to know where probabilistically. Probabilistically? You want to know what that means? No, no, where it comes from. Up from the word probable? Right. Something is likely. I read it and I was like, I know what it means, but. Yes. These truths about from history, okay, are all probable. We don't know with certainty, like we know that God proves so that two and two makes four, that all these things, you know, any truth from history is something that's likely. The more you have, the more probable it becomes. Okay? All right. <laughs> You're welcome. I gotta stop.